So the earliest publication of the old hymn, I Shall Not Be Moved, in its most common form is from Edward Boatner's book, Spiritual Triumphs, Old and New. Some of the lyrics say, as you can imagine, I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. The song references several Bible passages, but one in particular out of Psalms 1 that I want to share with you. Psalms 1-1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And catch this, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bring forth its fruit in due season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me this morning. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we get close to concluding that letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Really quickly as you're turning there, let's catch up where we were. Last week, Paul taught on the glorified bodies that we shall get before we go to heaven. Remember, we said we cannot go into the atmosphere and into heaven with these bodies, so we're going to get glorified bodies before going to heaven. And Paul went on to describe how much better these glorified bodies are going to be than these natural tents that we live in now. Our earthly bodies, they're going to die. Every single earthly body will die, but our resurrected bodies are going to be immortal. To a non-believer, death is a curse, but not so to a Christian. Death is not a curse to us. This is what John MacArthur said. All death can do is bring the believer to Jesus. That's all death can do to us. So then Paul explained how the physical resurrection could happen using change within creation. You see change within creation. You see change from seeds and different things. A seed that's planted doesn't look anything like the grain that it produces. Neither will our resurrected bodies be anything like these bodies we have now because a transformation has to take place. So with our resurrected bodies, incorruption replaces this body's corruption. Glory replaces dishonor. Christ's power replaces our weaknesses. And our new spiritual life replaces this natural man. And so we said, Christians go through one metamorphosis at the time of salvation. We are changed at the moment, our spirit is changed the moment we receive Jesus Christ. But the whole church is going to go through a metamorphosis when the rapture happens and we get our new bodies. The last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15.52 describes the church's marching orders at the rapture where we get new bodies. And so today, Paul's going to show us how death is finally defeated through Christ so that we should be immovable, working for the Lord. All right, so if you have your sermon notes there, Roman numeral one, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians 15, let's start at verse 54. The Apostle Paul says, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption... And this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? 
O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So the resurrection and the defeat of death goes against all natural understanding. Think about this. When Paul is talking to the people at Corinth and he's talking about how death has been defeated, these people at Corinth must have been just scratching their head thinking, Paul, you've really gone off your rocker this time. What are you talking about? Everybody is going to die. What are you talking about that death is defeated? There in your notes, Sigmund Freud said this. And finally, there's the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. I read an article this week by Armin Nikolai, clinical professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, about Freud, and this is what he said. Freud died at the age of 83 after a 16-year battle with cancer. Just before he died, he went to a library and took out a book called The Fatal Skin. In this book, the main character makes a pact with the devil. The book ends when the hero can't master his fear and dies in a state of panic. Now, it's strange that this was Freud's last book that he ever read. After reading this book, Sigmund Freud reminded his doctor of a promise he had made much earlier that he would help ease his pain when it came time for him to die. His doctor injected him with two centigrams of morphine that caused him to fall asleep. Then after 12 hours, gave him two more, and Freud finally died at 3 a.m. September 12, 1939, after reading this book. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, described how an atheist has this problem with human suffering, especially the capacity to foresee his own death, desiring to be permanent in this world, and making it difficult to believe that God is somehow a loving, kind, merciful God. If God was kind and merciful and loving, why would death exist? C.S. Lewis couldn't get it. But then C.S. Lewis became a Christian. And once he became a Christian, he understood that death was part of the fall that came from Adam. That originally, God did not design us to die. But because sin entered the world, so did death. And that death was not part of the original plan. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's saying, our final transformation is going to fulfill so many prophecies. So many, and one he names right here. When Paul said, death is swallowed up in victory, he was actually quoting from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah 800 years before Christ ever walked the earth. This is what Isaiah said, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, when we realize we're going to get resurrected bodies, not only is it going to fulfill what Isaiah said, but it's going to fulfill all Old Testament prophecies. Robinson and Plummer said this, that all Old Testament prophecies will become an accomplished fact at our resurrection. There in your notes, swallow up means to devour, destroy, or to abolish forever. Death is abolished forever because of what Jesus Christ did. 
Paul said something very similar to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8. This is what Paul told him. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, catch this, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, death has no more power. For those who are in Christ, we don't need to fear death whatsoever. Notice what Paul said in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. Christ's resurrection and his promise for our resurrection prove that we are not only not longer under the law, but we're not under the law's penalty either. Galatians 3.23, Paul said, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, catch this, the law was our tutor. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's all the law was that we might be justified by faith. But catch this, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law. Stop trying to keep the law to be righteous before Christ. Christ came to fulfill the law and pay the law for our place. There in your notes. So the law no longer has any hold of us. Because Jesus fully satisfied all of the righteous requirements needed under the law in order for us to approach a holy God. All right, so what does that bring us? Roman numeral two. Victory in Jesus. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but thanks be to God. Thanks in, in the Greek is the same word as grace, charis. There in your notes, daily, we are in desperate need of God's grace. And so as a response, we can give grace to God with our gratitude to him for his gift of victory over sin and death. For the believer, death is not a period in the story. It's simply a comma. Do you understand that? You know, we sit over at funerals for a believer and we grieve, and right, rightfully so. I mean, I miss some of the people who've gone home to be with the Lord. And, and so we grieve over death of a Christian. But Paul tells us, let us not let grieve like others without hope. For we know that when Jesus comes back, he's bringing them with him. We know it, and that's the promise. Notice, Paul says, who gives? But thanks be to God, who gives? This is a present tense, a continual tense, which means that we should continually, every day, moment by moment, be thankful for God, for what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of these Corinthian Christians for just a minute. So this is 60-ish AD, Roman Empire's going and blowing, and Paul's saying, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Corinthian and you hear you have victory, what's going through your mind? 
Maybe you're thinking I have victory over Rome. Maybe you're thinking about the people who go into the Colosseum and face the lions. You know, what are you thinking about? But with Jesus, think about this. What Paul's trying to tell him is Jesus conquered all. And he didn't keep the victory for himself. He shared it with his kids. He gave us victory over the law, over sin, over death. No longer do those things have any hold of us unless we give it to them. I read another thing by David Dupra this week, and I wanted to share it with you. He asked the question, what's your definition of victory? He said, many Christians today are being taught that victory is when we get our will done or our desires fulfilled, or that God solves some kind of problem for us. That's victory in Jesus. Others are teaching that victory is just a matter of preaching the gospel in new areas. There in your notes. He said, but in reality, victory means God getting his will to his glory, not simply in my life, but over me personally. Any less. And it really isn't complete victory in Jesus. Boy, that goes against some of that faith teaching, doesn't it? Not my will, but your will be done. That's victory in Jesus. So what kind of victories do we already have in Jesus? This is kind of where I wanted to go, the crux of the message. What kind of victories do I already have? And again, you can name all kinds of different things. The Apostle John said it this way, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Victory in Jesus is our ultimate hope. I've walked on this earth long enough to know that there's a lot of difficulties in life. And I'm sure if we shared stories, a crowd this size, we can all talk about, you know, loss of parents or loss of children, loss of finances, loss of marriages, all kinds of different things. This life, unfortunately, has a lot of difficulties that come with it. But we don't have to be hopeless because we have Jesus Christ. The psalmist said in Psalms 18.35, You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. So what are some of the victories? Number one, in Christ, again, we have victory over death. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So we no longer have to fear death. The very fact that he burst forth out of that grave as a bodily resurrection proves that what he said is right. And he said, we don't have to fear death. We're going to rise again someday. There in your notes. So for the Christian... Physical death is just us passing from one home to another as we enter the throne room of the Lord to spend eternity with him. You didn't die, you moved. You got a new residence. And let me tell you, I've read John 14. The residence that he's been preparing for 2,000 years for me. Oh. 2 Corinthians 5.8, this is what Paul says. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from this body means to be present with him. We are confident, yes, rather well pleased that to be absent from this body, I'm with the Lord. But besides the ultimate victory over death, we're assured of other victories also. Number two, there in your notes, in Christ we have victory over Satan. 
Many people think that Satan's like the yin to God's yang, right? That Satan is somehow equal to the Lord, but he is not. And by the way, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Once we receive the Lord Jesus Christ and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit living within us, he gives us the power and the ability to no longer sin, to not give in to the temptations of Satan any longer. Again, the Apostle John in Revelation 12.10 said, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Catch this. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night was cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. That's who we are. We're overcomers in Jesus Christ. Number three, in Christ we have victory over our enemies. And we'd say, oh yeah, great. Hold on, maybe not so great. <laughs> there in your notes, faith in Christ gives us the ability to have victory over our enemies by loving them in Christ and praying for them. That doesn't mean that our enemies become our friends. And that doesn't mean that we don't have boundaries for people who have abused us. But we can love them in Jesus anyway, and we can pray for them. The Lord will handle the injustice in our lives, and he'll protect us from those things, and he'll work all things together for his glory. I'm sure of it. But we're free to no longer let our enemies have the throne of our life any longer. We're free to no longer let them consume our thoughts and consume us with hatred and unforgiveness and anger because we're free by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony to forgive them and to love them and to pray for them. We gain freedom from the burden of our enemies when we give them over to Jesus. You know, I've always thought of it this way. How much do I owe my Lord and Savior for everything he's forgiven me of? And I've always thought it this way. When you owe me so much because you're an enemy of mine, what I do is I put it on Christ's account because I owe him so much. And so the forgiveness that I offer is because I owe my Savior so much. People don't deserve forgiveness sometimes. Some people don't. But I have to give it to Christ, who I owe so much, and lay it down at the cross and put it on his account. Paul said it this way to the Romans in Romans 12:17. He said, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, number four. In Christ, we have victory over sin. Again, Christ has set us free from the temptation of sin and evil by taking the cross. And you know, maybe you're like me and sometimes your flesh fails. And even though I'm saved, I know I'm saved, God loves me, His Holy Spirit tells me, His Spirit confirms in my spirit that I'm a child of God, I still blow it. How about you? But we have power 
to no longer give in to the flesh. We do have that power. Ephesians 6.10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 1 Corinthians 10.13, maybe you remember several weeks back we studied this. But Paul said, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Paul assures us in every temptation that you don't think you're strong enough to overcome, look for the way out. God always provides a way out. Will you take it? Number five, in Christ... We have victory over fear. In the flesh, we fear many things. But we know Jesus is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's a mighty God. Nothing is too powerful for our God. With the Lord on our side, just use a little logic for a minute. With God on my side, what can man do to me? What can he do? Paul told his protege Timothy again, For God has not given us the spirit of fear but one of power and of love and a sound mind. I'm ashamed to tell you this story, but I'll tell it to you anyway. When I was in business, we had opened a second business and we lost a lot of money. We lost a lot of money and during that time we're negotiating with the landlord over the lease of the second business and they had pulled some kind of raunchy things and we were having to fight and uh, I didn't hire an attorney, I acted as my own attorney. The end of the story is I won, but in the middle of the story, I was puking blood. I mean, a lot of money on the line, and our business that was supporting us was on the line because of this second business. And every day, for months and months and months, I was just a wreck. And our bookkeeper hated Christians, hated me because I was a Christian, but worked for a younger guy. Finally, one day, he said, you know, Rich, I don't understand you. Let me tell you something. They can't eat you. And I said, what? He goes, Rich, what are they going to do? They can't eat you. Why are you worried? I went home so convicted because here's a non-believing atheist that hated my guts (laughs) preaching Jesus to me. (laughs) If God is for us, Who can be against us? Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So because of that, because God's with us, who can be against us? We have all these victories in Jesus, so what should we do? Roman numeral three, be steadfast and immovable. Look at verse 58. Therefore, because of all that, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. David Guzik said, because we know death is defeated and we have an eternal resurrected destiny with Jesus Christ, we should stand firm and unshakable all the more right now. Right now, 
There in your notes, we should work hard in everything now, working for the Lord, because we know it's going to count forever. It's going to count forever. Let me ask you a crazy question. How many times have you felt led to do something for the Lord and it didn't work out the way you hoped? How many times have you felt led to do something for the Lord and then felt like it was all in vain? Man, that was a waste of time. Man, nobody recognized what I did and this trial occurred or there's lack of fruit or whatever. Can I tell you a secret? Even if you're not recognized for what you do for Jesus, he knows. He knows. You may never receive praise from men or women on this side of heaven, but Jesus knows. And our promised resurrection means that our labor for him is not in vain. You know, a lot of times you don't know the fruit. You don't know the seeds that were planted. You don't know. And so you just have to do what God has called you to do and leave the results to him. And that's tough sometimes because we all like an attaboy once in a while, don't we? This kind of sounds like perseverance to me. Persevere. Do what God has called you to do. So I wanted to tell you a couple of stories about perseverance. I heard of these two frogs. They fell in a bowl of milk. And they kicked and they paddled and they kicked and they paddled and they moved around and kicked and paddled and kicked and paddled. And pretty soon nothing was happening. So the first frog is sure death is coming. So he just gives up and he drowns and he dies. The second frog, not so for me. So he just kept kicking and paddling, kicking and paddling. Two hours went by and the milk turned to butter. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a real story or not. <laughs> Think of Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison tried and tried and tried and tried to make the light bulb. And he failed hundreds of times. Uh, imagine failing hundreds of times but yet kept it going. If he didn't keep going, we wouldn't have the light bulb. This is what the Amplified Bible says of that verse. I thought I'd share it with you. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be firm, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That is, always being superior, excelling, doing more than enough in the service for the Lord. Knowing and being continually aware that your labor in the Lord is not futile, it's never wasted. It's never of no purpose. Let's get a couple of definitions from this verse there in your notes. The meaning of some of the words. Steadfast means to stand firm. Immovable means firmly persistent. And abounding means over and above, like overflow, a certain amount or measure. Like Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of water will flow, overflow in him. That's what it means, abounding. What you do for the Lord is never wasted, never. So then Paul says, therefore, therefore, and you always got to find out what it's there for. Consequently, because of all the doctrinal truths about our resurrection, all the doctrinal truths about the gospel and our positional and practical glorification, it should always lead, it should always guide us and influence us to serve the Lord thankfully, energetically, and dutifully. 
This is what John Walvoord said. It should be clear that Paul is presenting this truth in 1 Corinthians 15 as an imminent hope. On the basis of its expectations, he urges the brethren to serve the Lord faithfully. Our sure future, our promised resurrection and glorification should serve to animate and energize our present behavior. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God remembers what you do. God remembers. These Corinthians knew and they should have had all the faith in the world that God was going to do this. But they were so tired of getting attacked from skepticism that they just failed to trust the Lord. He said, let there be less speculation and more work. So for a conclusion, I'm going to read you a couple of passages out of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 12, says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him with truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Look at 24 again. Only fear the Lord and serve him with your whole heart. Consider the great things he's done for you. If we get this firm grip on the resurrection and we believe what God has said in his word, why would we not, out of a pure heart, serve him with all of our heart and all our mind and all our strength, knowing that soon and very soon we're going to be with the Lord? And since death is no longer victorious over believers, this should motivate us to have an unshakable, immovable faith in Christ. Billy Graham said, death has two stages. First, the separation of the body from the spirit, which is purely a spiritual existence. And second, the reunion of the body at the glorious resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Since we know that his promises are yes and amen, since we know that he's true, we should serve him at a grace, thankfully serving him for all that he does. Again, I shall not be moved. That old hymn, immovable, serving the Lord. And all that we do for the Lord is done by his strength and his power. So let us not be shaken. I love what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Why? For in due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Again, Guzik, we should work hard in everything right now, knowing that it counts forever. 2 Corinthians 1, 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him are amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who established us with you in Christ 
and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. If we trust the Lord and we believe what he's saying, we serve him, not out of duty. We don't serve him trying to earn salvation. We don't serve him being the good boy and girl and getting the recognition from men because you may never get that. We serve him out of a response of love because he loved us first. We love him back and we serve him and we should not be moved because we trust and we know what he has promised. Every promise in God is yes and in him it's amen. It will happen. And so we serve him. So be immovable as we serve the Lord. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. And every week we have some folks in the back who'd love to pray for you. There's prayer partners in the back who would just love to have an opportunity to share in your requests and your praises and all those sort of things. But can I just tell you, there are times that you get just so burnt out, not seeing fruit, not seeing things, and it's so easy to just give up. You may not know. In fact, you may think, I've never done anything for the kingdom. It, it, God led me to do something, but it just doesn't feel like it made a difference. And, and when you get to heaven and you see this line of people lined up to thank you for giving to the Lord, as the song says, I want you to think about that. Most of the stuff you do for God here, you won't see the fruit, but be immovable. Listen to the Lord and serve him with a pure heart because he's worthy whether or not you see fruit or not. But someday when we're with Christ in heaven, we're going to realize, oh my goodness, the king of glory actually used little old me to make a difference for eternity in someone's life. Whoa. Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.